Welcome to Establish the Edge. I'm your host, Mike Leone. Excited to bring you the final installment of the Establish the Edge projection special with Ben Gretsch. Want to make sure to give a special thank you to Gretsch for grinding out these projections and doing these podcasts for with me these last few weeks. And it's something we've received a lot of positive feedback on. So really appreciate all the support all out there. Also want to give a shout out to Jack Miller, Mark Dankenbring at Establish the Run, who have done a ton of work to help me with the Establish the Run projection side of things. And if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, make sure you go back and check those out. There's going to be eight total. This is number eight. We're going to wrap things up with the NFC West. And yeah, Ben, excited to do this pod series with you every year, but also excited to finish every year. Yeah, man, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. I I feel uh, certainly honored to get the chance to do it with you and chat through with you. Appreciate having me on. Appreciate the whole team at ETR. And then, yeah, like you said, we get a lot of great feedback on this. Definitely want to take a minute to shout out everybody who listens to all these. There's obviously a lot of content in these, but it's cool to see how positive the feedback is for a lot of people. It's sort of like their entry back into, you know, fantasy football for the summer. If they haven't been grinding best ball all off season. I know for me, it's like, yeah, now we're in crunch time. Like as soon as I do these pods with you, these last couple of years, it's like, I'm ready to go. It's a countdown to week one now. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's fun to put this stuff into action and, Let's go to San Francisco and start putting this stuff into action. And I know for us, San Francisco is always one of the trickiest teams each year because their play calling, you know, we've each got them below 63 plays per game, which is below average. We've each got them right around 55, 56% called pass rate, which is below average. And on paper, not super exciting, but they're efficient year in and year out. And that makes it somewhat difficult you know, to marry the efficiency and the volume. Something I hit on in the last episode is sometimes you have a tendency to regress the efficiency and then trust the volume. And I know with San Francisco, especially with the addition of CMC, they're a struggle where you can kind of visualize the upside on a lot of the individual players. But then when you're trying to do the math to make it work, it can get tough. So I'm excited to talk this through with you. But as I noted, we're pretty in line with the play calling we're both expecting Purdy to be the primary starter. We baked in a little bit more risk on just him not being ready week one. But so far, the signs are pretty good for Purdy. He's actually someone that I wanted to target a lot early in the offseason where I think people were were overly discount. Super early in the offseason, I was worried he wasn't going to be ready with the arm stuff. But as that mm-hmm. news got more positive, I was like, I think you know if he's going at the very end of drafts, people are discounting the chances that maybe he's actually – good you know super small sample not a great prospect but he was awesome in his starts last year and Shanahan just has a history of kind of getting quarterback efficiency out of anyone um, mm-hmm. but I did kind of struggle to marry that with I, I wasn't super high on the pass catcher so um, how do you feel about Purdy yeah I mean I, I think you put that well the only reason I I was the same way all off season. The only reason I projected only Purdy is like, it's just, you know, uh, it's more work, frankly, to yeah. do the whole other projection, similar to the Colts where I kind of think Minshew might play a little bit this year, but it's like, you have to redo the whole projection. If Minshew's in there, same thing here. Like you have to, if Trey Lance starts the everything changes for the, you know, the past volume for everything. And that is an important thing to consider, but it does look, and it's, it's favorable for the skill position guys. It does look like it's going to be Purdy, 
pretty early in the season, if not week one, and for the majority of the year that they're pretty comfortable with him. And that means you know fewer quarterback runs, especially um, and a lot more of the short passing and the yak creation and um, the efficiency. And like you said, I mean, Shanahan's offenses can can create efficient passers out of basically anyone, it seems. And so you have to feel like Purdy late is a reasonable bet. There's a, I mean, this is the kind of the death star of weaponry. I mean, the big new trend in the NFL has been sort of positionless stuff. Um, one of the things we talked about, I know going back to like the Giants, they went and got Darren Waller. Okay, now they can be in 12 personnel, have two tight ends in the set, and they can either line up in a heavy package and run, or after they break the huddle, split Waller out. I think that's a big reason they brought him in. Dable wants to use him creatively. The, the, the Niners do this more than anyone. McCaffrey last year after they brought him in was splitting out wide and running slants on the same play that Debo's in the backfield. So you have a wide receiver who can get back there and be a running back. You have a running back who can be an elite slot receiver, basically. I mean, they, they'll use McCaffrey as a weapon. So that you know positionless element, at least to those two guys, and but those two guys are so versatile that it kind of can shift around everyone else. Everyone else can bump like a little bit, but those guys can play basically anywhere on the field. Um, it's yeah, I mean, it's a really fascinating team to project out, but you know, the efficiency is going to be there. Shanahan's going to do it intelligently. And yeah, I mean, the volume, not great, but like you talked about on some of the earlier podcasts as well, like the efficiency drives the low volume in some respects, these guys have yeah. high yards per play. And that means their drives tend to be, uh, fewer plays at the same time. Yeah. They, they run the ball a decent amount and they keep the clock moving too. And that has an impact as well. So the volume thing is a concern. Yeah, and I do, you know, just kind of going through and seeing our projected pass attempts were off a little, even though we have similar play con. I do think we had the scramble rate on San Francisco too high. So some of the volume stuff that we're concerned about will be like slightly reduced. Um, and I just, just hope that I updated the the player level stuff as we, we go through this. But going to CMC, we've each got him cracking 90 targets, just shy of 100 targets, which is a pretty, you know, huge projection for a running back and we've got him over 200 carries. I think he's, you know, RB one uh, Eckler, who we talked about on the last podcast, I think is both of ours RB two right now. Um, I prefer CMC, but it's, you know, it, it's kind of close. And with CMC, you know, just getting him in this offense in San Francisco, I think just increases the high value touches that we harp on where, He's going to get the workload in the passing game. Maybe he gets a little bit less volume in terms of pure carries over the course of the season than he's maybe had some years in the past. But that's kind of a decent trade-off for a team that's going to score more than other teams that he's played on. And you kind of reduce the injury risk a little bit along the way by having, you know, just there were times for Carolina where he was like a 98% snap share player, which was just kind of crazy for a running back. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like this more almost. It's like in terms of longevity, some of the, the injury concerns he had in Carolina. I mean, in this setup, you're talking about, yeah, he's not going to have maybe even 50% of the rushes overall because Debo's taking some. Elijah Mitchell's obviously taking some. And, and down the, the running back group, you're going to have Jordan Mason. You're going to have these guys mixing in. Kyle Juszczyk is going to get some carries. Um, but he's not – needing all like those are the low value touches as you were alluding to like the like a higher percentage of his touches now become the high value touches he still got a lot of 
uh, looks in close in San Francisco, plenty of touchdown equity, liked using him uh, even in the passing game and creative, creatively, I think, in the red zone. Um, some smart play designs. I remember one where they had him sort of split out uh, in the flat, and I remember writing about him stealing signals last year where I, I think it was still when Garoppolo was playing. I'm not entirely sure, but um, the, the quarterback extended the play a little bit, and, and CMC, they're at like the eight-yard line. CMC's in the flat. He takes off as the play gets extended, just like straight up the sideline toward the end zone. It's just one of those feel things where he takes off right at the moment when someone was stepping up to take away the flat. He gets behind that guy immediately. The quarterback threw it to him. It's an eight-yard touchdown. It's an easy play, but it's an easy play because CMC's an instinctual player, and he's like a, he's a very good receiving and route runner and find space kind of player. He did a great job of finding space on that play is what I'm trying to describe. And so those kinds of things are gonna they're gonna pan out for you in the red zone. And obviously, you know, when we're talking about this massive target projection, he's gonna have plenty of receptions. Those are all the 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 big touches for fantasy football, right? The receptions, the TDs. I do come out with McCaffrey slightly ahead of Eckler, but these are the two guys that you know are the are the high value touch kings this year. I mean, when you when you look at a projection, I have them for the top two receptions by a lot. I have like Jameer Gibbs is my third one, quite a ways behind. But then I also can't project Gibbs for nearly the touchdown potential of McCaffrey and Eckler. That combination that these two running backs have is uh, is really strong for their floor and their ceiling. Yeah, uh, well said. Let's go to the backup running back spot where Elijah Mitchell, I think, does have some value. But we've got a pretty different projection here. You've only got him with 106 carries. We have 154 carries. And it was... You know, there were times last season, especially in games where San Francisco got ahead, where Elias and Mitchell in the second half would be used really heavily uh, in the ground game, would end up even like out carrying McCaffrey in some of those games. And then some of the games that were a bit tighter um, in terms of the score differential all the way through, you know, you wouldn't see as much Elijah Mitchell. But I have been taking him in best ball just because I think that dynamic gives him some standalone value for a team that's going to score a decent bit of rushing touchdowns. I do think it's going to have some big leads over the second half. And then you also get the handcuff value on CMC. In addition, uh, I'm trying to figure out where your carries are. You've got, you know, a few more CMC's way and then a few more Jordan Mason's way. I guess that kind of the combination of those two add up to our gap on Elijah Mitchell. Yeah. And I'm kind of looking at that as well too. Cause I, 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 I've been taking Mitchell as well, and I think he's a good play, especially in best ball, because as you're kind of describing, I mean, I think like plus script at some points, there was games where they kind of leaned off McCaffrey in the second half and just let Mitchell go to work and get like 10 second half carries. I think you're going to see his touches consolidate some weeks, and that's obviously a positive for best ball. You, you get sort of usable weeks, and then the weeks when they're not usable, you're not just like, I mean, it doesn't matter in some respects if he gets two points or six points, right? But, like, it seems like a profile where he could have some games where he has two points. But I do think um, your guys' numbers are a little bit closer to what I feel like he'll actually do. This is a little – it feels like a mistake on my end. But, um, yeah, I, I think um, he's really intriguing. One thing that I was a little concerned about in doing the projection was – uh, sort of how Kyle Uzcheck is. I mean, he's he's used so interestingly. He's essentially the tight end too. The non-Kittle tight ends combined for twelve targets all year because Kittle only played, despite Kittle only playing fifteen games. And so, like, I mean, they didn't even really mix in other tight ends. The the games when Kittle was uh, was active, 
But he also limits, use check also limits the non-CMC running back targets. I mean, you had a few for Jeff Wilson, which was basically before CMC showed up. But he had 13 on the year. But if you remove Jeff Wilson and look at the rest of the running backs, Elijah Mitchell winds up, he doesn't play a lot of games last year, but winds up with only four targets, 45 carries. And then you have like Tevin Coleman had three, Tyron Davis-Price had two. Those guys combined for 46 more carries. I mean, that, that group had nine targets and almost 100 carries. And so I ended up projecting Mitchell for a sort of a similar rate. Uh, and, and I think it's it's important that Mitchell gets up to around 150 carries is what I'm getting at. I think he's a he's a better bet in half. Mm-hmm. Or he's a, a rushing efficiency play. <laughs> yeah, I remember, you know, he was getting a little bit of pass catching work when it was like the year prior when he took over a little bit. But last year, certainly... His role was the, you know, grinder from ahead, the two-down grinder from ahead, and CMC playing the clear, all the pass-down stuff. So that's a good point, and it is important how those, you know, line up. You need you need the carries to be there because we know the targets aren't going to be there. Going to the wide receivers, um, right now we, we feel pretty good. It's Purdy, as I said, kind of like adjusted our scramble rate a little bit, which is favorable for the targets here, but that does show you you know, it seems like Lance is kind of dead at this point. Um, but if Trey Lance were to play, like things could go really bad for the wide receivers, I guess. I just wanted to point that out because yeah. one, I think they'd call more run plays to begin with, but also the called pass plays would turn into scrambles at a higher rate. And then like the targets start to drop off, I think like a lot more than you'd probably expect than when you actually do the math. Um, but we've each got Debo Samuel for around 115 targets, Ayuk for around 100 targets as the clear, you know, top two wide receivers. We'll get to Kittle in a second when we do tight ends. Uh, I've been somewhat in on Debo in that third round when the you know the wide receivers get pushed up so much. He's someone from a talent perspective that I don't mind betting on um, when you start getting into the riskier third round wide receivers like guys like Amari Cooper and whatnot. So I've taken him a decent bit. I haven't taken a ton of Ayuk as he's come up the board. I think he's, you know, an okay bet. It's difficult to parse exactly what the target share allocation is going to be for San Francisco when all these guys are healthy, you know, which is kind of a key component to all this and and Ayuk's upside because we there were a lot of moving parts last year, but and there will be moving parts again this year, but probably going to get more games than last year where the big four are all playing together between Debo, Ayuk, CMC, and George Kittle. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think you put that all really well. Uh, it's It's almost. It'd almost be easier if we were getting like negative camp reports about Ayuk, but we're getting these incredible camp reports. Debo's out here saying, you know, you can't cover him in a phone booth. He looks ready to take this next step to the top five overall wide receivers. Um, and so, you know, it's, it gets you excited about Brandon Ayuk, who took a step forward last year after a down second season. Uh, when you look at, like, targets per run, some of that stuff, a lot of times when you get in these constant – or these um, uh, these passing games that have a lot of options, concentrated, but, like, but but several. not Sometimes we refer to concentrated as, like, two main options, but, like, four options um, – you kind of find that the, the targets per run obviously are, are going to come down because not everybody can run a target on every play, but you might find that one or two guys sort of slips more than others where it's 
that guy's you know probably not on the other one's level. I, I guess the Bengals is the one that comes to mind. Tyler Boyd has fallen quite a bit the last couple of years when Chase and Higgins have been doing their thing together. Um, and he's just probably not on the level of those guys. We didn't see that last year in San Francisco. Like Kittles, you know, came down a little. Debo came down a little. Ayuk actually came back up from his sophomore year, but still not to like elite levels. McCaffrey comes down a little from what he had done earlier in his career. And it kind of just paints this picture of like, yeah, it's four really good players competing for targets and not everyone can get to the levels they did when they were in weaker passing games. And so, I mean, individually, each of them looks really good and there's not really a reason to be out on any of them or be like, yeah, this guy is more of an alpha than that guy. Debo, you mentioned, I, I'm willing to make the bet on Debo too. Weird year for him as ADOT comes down from 2021. Big part of his 2021 breakout was that he was getting more downfield uh, targets, more air yards overall. ADOT comes down, but also his efficiency falls. Catch percent comes down, with which at a lower ADOT, his catch percent shouldn't be falling necessarily. And he's always going to have a weird distribution because a lot of his targets are coming right at the line of scrimmage. But his uh, yards per target also way down. He's a, obviously a huge yak guy. I, I think he's a really reasonable one to bat, uh, bet on the efficiency to bounce back a little bit. And you like that, like, you know, he's a guy they're going to use some on the ground. And so, like, in any script, you feel like he can get worked into the game plan uh, to some degree, short passes. The idea, uh, ideal for him would be to get some more of those downfield targets. But then if Iuke is, like, a, a legit breakout player this year, that might be part of the reason that Debo wasn't really getting those. Um, it's tricky. It's tricky when you start thinking about it from different depths, too, because even at the shorter areas, you have Christian McCaffrey in those ranges now as well. Um it's yeah. I mean, I, I do have this projection really consolidated on those four guys. Jawan Jennings for about fifty targets, but the rest of it for me is like I. I mean, I don't see a lot of scenarios where the Niners are not throwing a really high percentage of these four guys. Even if one goes down, you still have three other ones, and I think they probably consolidate. Yeah, and generally speaking, we really like these condensed offenses. It's a little easier when they're condensed and they're going to throw a lot. Um, which is basically the whole reason we're having this conversation is that trying to offset the volume, they could be really efficient. They're going to be condensed and it's, but like the market wants these types of players too. So it can be tricky. Ayuk's target average target share in the games where Kittle and Debo played was just under 19% on the season. We've got him around 20%. We're projecting Debo for 23%. Honestly, we're matching basically the season long target shares pretty closely to what they did last year, but uh, the playoff games for IU weren't ideal. 17% target share, 14%, and 6% target share um, for the three playoff weeks. For IU in those games, Debo was at 30%, 24%, 33%. Kittle, 7%, 17%, 22%. You know, a small sample, but I, I am a little worried when they're all healthy that maybe yeah. IU is last. That's a good sample. I, I mean, I think that's that's an interesting point. Yeah, it's difficult. I think where he's going is okay. I was probably too bearish on him, just maybe lagging behind again as we switch stuff from Lance to Purdy, just lagging behind some of the other team stuff, didn't adjust like as quickly as we should have. I think he's going in an okay spot, but um, he seems he's to still not an easy guy. click there. I haven't taken him a lot yeah. either, and I'm always drafting receivers in that range, but it's not, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not easy to click there. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's no one at wide receiver, in my opinion, that's fantasy relevant behind Debo and Ayuk. We mentioned it's concentrated. Um, you've even got more targets on Jennings than we do. We've got 37. You've got 51. 
Moving over to Kittle, you've got 98 targets. We've got 88. Your stuff tends to run a little bit hotter. I should note, too, you're a little bit higher on the efficiency overall on the wide receivers, too, which does make a difference. And, again, that's where it's it can be tricky. Um, we don't know exactly what we're going to get out of Purdy. We do know historically, like, these offenses have just worked and been really efficient passing almost who's been back there. But with Kittle, the – the better in best ball tag, I don't think applies to a lot of people. It's overused, but for Kittle, I can definitely see where this spike week upside for him at tight end is kind of insane, you know, relative to other tight ends. I mean, he's had some 35 plus point games out there, uh, maybe not quite 35 plus point in, in half PPR, but he's had some absolutely monster weeks, but he'll also put together a bunch of weeks where, you know, he struggles to crack 20 yards receiving, you know, just because they're not throwing a lot. They'll ask him to block. There's other guys to compete for targets. So he's really interesting to me where like I can really visualize the upside, but you can also see where it could be like a pretty pedestrian season just from a volume standpoint. Definitely. I mean, I think you put that well. I, I have had a really hard time with Kittle because the, the last few years, because when you look at, um his profile i mean you you there's clear efficiency year in and year out you know you're going to get that but it's like from a season-long perspective when you're doing a projection like this like what is the ceiling he hasn't had he's missed some time but he hasn't had even a thousand yard season since 2019 like back you go all about to 2018 his breakout year at 135 136 targets um and again missed some time in, in the season since but not been as much of a target, like big time target guy in the aggregate, right? When you look at his like full season numbers in the last couple of years. But like you said, I mean, that's, it's more just that like some weeks he's not as prioritized. He's a great blocker. He might just have like a two target game the next week. He can, and it, it, for him, it might only take six targets. He's going to have four catches and two touchdowns. And I mean, at tight end, that's, that's obviously very playable. It's going to be a top three week on the on the week probably so i mean he's he's like a tricky one for me and, and i i think you're right he's better in best ball for sure yeah i think our adp adjusted ranks do have kittle a little bit ahead of pits i've generally been siding with pits over kittle but like who do you have there that's uh that's that's where i would i would lean towards pits i think adp leans a little towards kittle if i'm not mistaken right but it does the adp it's, is it, it's a like great example higher on kittle Nine spots higher on Kittle. It's a great example of what I was uh, kind of trying to articulate there. Where like Pitts is one I can tell myself this full season breakout story where he, you know, is pretty reliable. Not not every single week, obviously. There's some volatility, but um, the target share can be really large for Pitts. He, you know, if he gets that sort of wide receiver role, etc. Like he could be a 150 target player. I can see that, and I can like I can be like, okay, he he's this monster breakout. I don't feel like Kittle has that type of ceiling, but in any given week, he has as much ceiling as any tight end, like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. Really well put. That makes a lot of sense. Let's go over to Seattle and man, both these West divisions that we finished with are fun to talk through. Seattle's another one. We've got them around 62 and a half plays per game. Roughly each have them at 61.5% called pass rate. Um, the difficulty with Seattle for me is the combination of trusting Pete Carroll and Geno Smith, it worked really well last year. There were definitely some positive signs in terms of 
how Seattle called plays in general. Their pass rate over expectation was positive one and a half percent, which I was honestly kind of shocked by. Would not have expected to see that coming into the year. Of course, would not have expected Geno Smith to complete nearly 70 percent of his passes coming into the year either. So that's a really good sign for Seattle. Does it hold up his second year? I'm not sure. Um, a lot of people are really bullish on this offense. You know, what they've done in terms of investing in skilled players is another good sign. Drafting Jackson Smith and Jigba, they draft Zach Charbonnet. And yeah, I get the bullishness, but I find myself a little bit worried that Gino and Pete can support this many skilled players. Uh, so I, you know, Gino is another one of those guys, though like Russ and whatnot, where you're definitely taking him in situations where it makes sense for the stack. I don't really think he's a one-off type of play, which is just kind of how you're supposed to play fantasy with these non-elite rushing quarterbacks. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting um, to go back as well to – he played a decent amount in 2021. I'm trying to get the exact number of dropbacks, but his completion percentage was – was really high. high that year as well. I mean, yeah. So he's had, I mean, it surprised me to dig into this. Yeah. So he only had 112 dropbacks that year, but um, 68%, you know, 69% completion percentages the last couple of years. TD rates have been strong both years, you know, yards per attempt. I mean, they're like identical. I think his TD rates identical both, both years, 5.3%. His yards per attempt, 7.4, 7.5, like right there. Um, and now, you know, with, with that, like, pretty efficient and I like the completion percentage element and people who are, you see the film takes, I saw a tweet the other day that was talking about him being one of the most accurate downfield passers in the league last year. The film takes have been talking about his accuracy, not just in the numbers, but where his ball placement was that he looks like a guy that, you know, yeah, he didn't play for a lot of years, but has been putting the ball in really good spots and is playing, you know, good quarterback and an accurate quarterback. And now he adds a potentially elite possession guy to the mix, this wide receiver three JSN that has this skill set that I think is exactly what helps that, <laughs> you know, the or it, it would improve that for a quarterback who needed to be more accurate or needed to raise his completion percentage and get the easy wins. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did the projection. I came out a little bit more interested in Gino. I hadn't really been taking him a lot, but I can see where, you know, adding these new weapons and the efficiency that he's shown the last couple of years, there's, there's definitely optimism that he can be like, yeah, Pete Carroll and, and the play calling might slow it down a little bit, but that he can be efficient enough to have some, you know, some pretty impressive weeks at least another kind of maybe better mm -hmm. and best ball guy, but might have some impressive efficiency spikes at, at, at individual weeks. Yeah, no, that's a good call. Let's look at the running back situation because, as I mentioned, they brought in the rookie Charbonnet for, um, you know, with some decent draft capital, with someone that a lot of people were, were excited to see where his landing spot would be, a guy that projects to potentially play in every down type of role. But then he lands in Seattle where they already invested a lot in Kenneth Walker. Walker showed to be a pretty big boom-bust guy for them last season. I know for me – I've been drafting a lot of Walker as his price tags dipped into the fifth round where you're just betting on these elite rushing, you know, efficiency guys. I know historically we like guys who catch more passes. I think Walker is going to catch just enough passes to be fine. But if the offense is good and Gino supports it, and you mentioned kind of those outcomes, Ben, 
like Walker could really smash in terms of a really efficient season, you know, a five plus yards per carry season with a really high touchdown rate can score from distance. So I'm still in on Walker, even though they, they drafted Charbs here as the RB two. Yeah, I'm with you. And I think, you know, Walker showed a good rushing um, profile last year, a little bit boom bust, but um, certainly explosive Charbonnet, you know, has a three-down profile, had the good receiving in addition to pretty strong rushing numbers in college. It's at least mildly concerning to me that he transferred away from Michigan um, and, you know, wasn't really able to make his mark there in a big way uh, and then winds up really making his name. And maybe I'm being a little bit biased here, but like in, in a Chip Kelly offense where, you know, in the past we've seen running backs do incredibly well in Chip Kelly offenses, Michael James, Royce Freeman, put up these incredible college numbers and then not really perform as well at the NFL level. I'm at least mildly concerned about that. I do like Charbonnet. He was a you know, fun guy to watch, but then you're also like, I mean, when you watch him, you're like, he's running through huge holes. Like, so it is kind of interesting um, that I'm at least mildly concerned. I would say I, I still think he's a pretty solid prospect and a guy to be willing to take you know to take some shots on in drafts. But um, by comparison, I feel more comfortable with Kenneth Walker, who interestingly enough was also uh, a transfer player in college. So I'm kind of you know holding that against Charbonnet, but you know they both were. But Walker showed enough last year is sort of the incumbent already. Charbonnet has to make his mark. I, I kind of feel like he's. Slated for, you know, Travis Homer left in the offseason, played a lot on passing downs. DJ Dallas has done some of that in the past. Charbonnet is easy to slot into those snaps. And so I do have him, you know, I, it looks like we both have them very similar in targets despite having a pretty big gap towards Walker in carries. So we have Charbonnet being, you know, more of this, uh, you know, touch mix leaning towards receptions type of receiving back, but also getting, you know, 100 plus carries. But, I mean, I just feel like Walker still could catch as many balls and have a lot more rushing, you know, upside and sort of just be the lead. Is Yeah, anyway, I, I'm with you. He's a dead zone back that I'm willing to, to take swings on. Yeah, I think the talent's there and the cost right now is, like, just overly shy. Uh, and, and I don't even think Charbonnet's cost is, like, that bad. Like, we have him RB32. His underdog ADP is RB32. I've this hasn't happened a lot, but when I've gotten a real good price tag on Walker, who seems to have like a lot of variance from room to room, when I've gotten a real good price tag on him and then Charbs slips past ADP, I have taken them both together. You know, kind of like the Aaron Jones, AJ Dillon thing we talked about in that episode, where they both probably have a role and they should be like 90% plus of the RB touches when they're both healthy, where I think on any given week, either of them could crack your lineup. And, you know, you get windows of contingent upside, you know, hopefully neither of them goes down for a long period of time if you're drafting both of them, but you do get some, some spike week upside if one goes down or the other. So I think it's, it's an okay strategy to use both of those guys together in best ball. For sure. I, I, I think that's fine. Let's go. The offense. Yeah. Let's go to the wide receiver where it's really tough. Again, this is where, I get the optimism on the offense, but like I get some sh- get a little bit shy on some of these price tags. So DK Metcalf, just to set the stage here, his ADP right now is wide receiver 15. Tyler Lockett is wide receiver 33. Huge gap between those guys, despite them, you know, once again, scoring pretty much 
the same in fantasy. And Jackson Smith and Jigba is wide receiver 32. I feel like Lockett and JSN's price tags have come down a little bit recently. I'll have to double check if that's um, just my personal perception or, or reality. But Metcalf's the guy I've had the toughest time getting early on. I've got him projected for 123 targets. You have 130 for Lockett. We have 101 targets. You have 107 for JSN. We have 93 targets. You have 107. We do have JSN ranked higher than Lockett uh, due to some efficiency stuff and just ceiling upside for the rookie. I've been getting some JSN lately, which I'm excited about um, because early on in the off season, like he was going in like round five and it, it was tough now he's slipped into round six and it's it's not too difficult to get him um which i'm excited to get some exposure there because he, he's the exact type of receiver you want to be in on it just you know how quickly does he cut into the target share and can gino support three pass catchers in the first six rounds you know that's the question with metcalf i'm really curious how you feel about metcalf ben where you know he's a gam for sure but he hasn't been like able to like super meaningfully separate from Lockett the past few years. And us projecting it and the market drafting still are giving him credit for being like the alpha wide receiver. I think he deserves some of that credit, but like how much credit do you give him there when, you know, it's, he hasn't really separated from Lockett too much the last two years. Yeah. Really tricky one as you laid out. Um, What's kind of fascinating is Lockett continues to be this guy that is sort of breaking stats a little bit every year where, I mean, he's never had uh, an elite like targets per out run, for example. I think his career high is 21.2%. Last year it was 20.5. It's right in that same range as always. But he does it at a high ADOT and he's always efficient. Like he's like his efficiency when you, you know, especially control for his ADOT and, and all these things. I mean, it seems capped, right? But like he's continued to do it every single year. His efficiency is on such an elite level that it makes his ceiling seem capped. So like when you're when I'm thinking through the Lockett and JSN thing, I'm like, yeah, I mean, look, Lockett continues to be really good. And he also often gets ranked behind where he's finishing and people make good points on that. But also it's like until he shows this like next target earning gear, I mean, there's not really much more he can do, but continue to be this or otherworldly efficient. And it's also one of those things where it's like, I mean, I'm, I have a hard time betting on otherworldly efficiency for still probably a capped target number, right? So, and now JSN's in the mix, right? JSN's upside case is okay. Well, he's just immediately an elite player, right? Yeah. Or Shane Waldron came over from the Rams last year and they didn't really use as much three wide receiver sets as the Rams had in the past, but now they've gotten his new Cooper cup. They've gotten his slot plus player in JSN. And that's, you know, I think one of the upside paths for JSN, where if you want to look at it from a projection standpoint, you can look at the offense and say, if he's in a Cooper cup type role, like that's going to be incredible. Um, and then Metcalf is interesting because his targets brought run the last two years actually has been up. He's been able to elevate that up to like a 24%, 25%. But his yards per target has come down both the last two years relative to his first two years. So those are the two elements that go into yards per out run. His yards per out run, all things considered, has been pretty stable and solid and good. 
but it's interesting because it's, he's gotten there different ways his first two years and his, his third and fourth years. The first two years, lower targets per out run, high efficiency per target. The last two years, it's like, well, you know, some of these pass attempts weren't working, but we'll keep feeding it to him. I think it's a good thing for his floor to be like, yeah, like when the efficiency's not there, they keep throwing mm-hmm. him the ball. They keep putting him up for, for this GAM profile. But you'd like to see if he can earn a lot of targets and spike the efficiency at the same time. He hasn't been as efficient as Lockett the last couple of years in terms of things like yards per target and touchdown rate. So it is. It is it's tricky. Um, and when I look at the profiles in the way I'm describing, it does feel like there's more meat on the bone for Metcalf to put it all together one year and have this really elite season. But I don't really love his price the way you described it as well. And then yeah. Lockett and JSN both feel like viable picks right at the same spot. So that's always tricky too. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the, the Metcalf Lockett gap to me makes more sense this year than like last year was like 30 spots of, of wide receiver ADP, mm-hmm. not overall spots of like just positional spots. And that seemed too wide for me, especially when like they were both the clear one, two. When you add JSN to the mix, I get why that gap's wider too, because like he's, you would think he would cut in more, he'd be more of a risk to lock it than to Metcalf mm-hmm. for a lot of the reasons you said. So I get that. I think for me with Metcalf, it's, you know, hit on a lot of some of these running backs who have fallen like that two, three turn. I just, I feel more comfortable with like Alave, Higgins, Devonta. Like I'll take those guys ahead of the running backs, but then, then I'm sort of leaning towards, you know, the Josh Jacobs, Brees Hall type third round running backs before Metcalf. And I think Metcalf's more in the like Debo Samuel, Keenan Allen kind of tier, which is an ADP about a half round behind where he's going right now, um, which, That's you know. Very well put for me as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then as you said, Rocket and JSN right now seem fine at cost. Uh, I'm more bullish on JSN just because I want that like late season upside profile but they seem they seem fine at cost it's funny because in a in a projection like Lockett's so efficient that you can't really justify like completely minimizing his efficiency jason's a rookie no matter how bullish you are on him it's hard to make his efficiency anywhere near where you're you know looking at Lockett's where it's been and then the only way to offset that would be if you were to to project jsn to immediately out target him so you look at like a base right. projection, like it's impossible to project JSN for more than Tyler Lockett. I wanted to, I tried, it's it's not possible. Yeah, that's a really good point. I know we went through that struggle too. It's like, are we really going to give JSN a higher base target share than, than Lockett? Um, and again, when you add in ceiling and stuff, we get JSN higher in ranks. But yeah, it is tough from a base projection standpoint. At tight end, Noah Fant, um, a little bit of a disappointing year from a volume perspective with Seattle, who seems to just want to use multiple tight ends. And now there's, you know, they're already heavily concentrated on wide receivers and that's going to be even more so the case when you throw JS into the mix. With that said, like Noah Fant to me is like a pretty talented tight end. Who's absolutely free. Um, so he is one of the round 18 tight ends that I felt pretty good about clicking the most nervous I feel about clicking him is that the market really just wants nothing to do with Noah Fan. I mean, is he's he like goes undrafted in, in some drafts in best ball? Yeah, last three years, solid targets per out run, or last four years, his whole career. Um, I've mentioned a, a stat that I use in my projections depth adjusted racer relative to his A dot, his racer, his you know, air conversion ratio would be higher because he has a lower a dot but it's it's even higher than you would expect when you control it every year all four years he's been very strong 
in terms of like where he comes in with like a yards per target relative to what you would expect based on his uh, his a dot, which is a lower number, meaning he's adding yak. He's adding stuff, really high catch rates. I mean, he's he's good, like you said, like everything about it's like he's a really interesting player in that his whole career we could view it differently if he just landed on some different teams because he has played four really good football seasons but just can't get enough routes no matter where he goes. And like you said, it's Seattle wants to do the tight end by committee stuff. It's kind of interesting because Will Disley's like the same. Like he's also really good in the depth adjusted racer every single year. They use him sort of sporadically and Disley's been efficient every season when they use him as well. And then even Colby Parkinson in the mixed in last year was efficient last year. I think he was like over eight yards per target, which for a tight end is, you know, is very strong. So they, you know, they are doing something that works, but it's like, it's it's annoying for, for Noah yeah. fan, like you know, for a Noah fan truther to 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 want to see more from him. It doesn't seem like we're going to get enough. We've got 350 routes from him last year. You probably need him up around 500 plus to see that efficiency and that profile really manifest. Yep, we've each got him projected for around 60 targets. Will Disley for exactly 30 targets, so a two to one ratio there. Yeah, I feel like round 18 though. It's like we think he's good. He's going to be the lead tight end. It might not be spectacular, but I don't know. Maybe maybe it breaks right, and if it doesn't, right, got a starting tight end sort of well, thing. And, yeah, and what I mean, it, it could break right a couple different ways. Certainly, the other tight ends could get banged up. The, one of the big discussion points on this offense that we haven't hit on yet is that they used a lot of multi tight end sets last year, so people are concerned about their three wide receiver usage. I think that the selection of Jackson Smith and Jigba obviously sort of tips their hand toward more three wide receiver usage. How much more is the question? But it's not like they're going to only do multi-tight end stuff. The way I did this projection was like, I think I basically didn't put very many targets at all to the wide receiver four and five, like fewer than I would in any other projection. Because I think when they get that third receiver on the field, it's going to be the three guys we think. And then when they're not having him on the field, it's like the extra player they're going to bring on is the additional tight ends. It's kind of like, who's the fifth? receiving option in their passing game rather than like the wide receiver four. the fifth receiving option is probably the multi-tight end. The sixth receiving option is probably also the third tight end uh, before it's, you know, D Eskridge or somebody um, point being, if, if they had some injuries like at with Disley or with JSN or something, I mean, Fant can pretty easily, it feels like get into a third share, you know, target share mm-hmm. because there's not really other wide receiver, you know, competition necessarily but i don't know i mean yeah it it, it should have been that way for him last year i guess is the the better way to put it like he should have had over 350 routes last year and it's hard to explain why he didn't yeah Uh, let's go to the rams we've got them around 62 to 62 and a half plays per game around a 61 to 62 percent called pass rate so we're pretty similar on the play calling, we have extremely similar lines on Matthew Stafford, you know, just shy of 4,300 yards, 25 passing touchdowns, putting them around 270 full season fantasy points. And I've struggled with the Rams a lot for a few different reasons uh, in terms of the passing game. You know, the old line was a nightmare last year. This is a team again that like, I think we could see a similar implosion to what we saw last year where like, if things start off poorly and guys are dinged, they could just kind of give up on the season more or less. Um, so I've been trying to weigh that systemic risk with some growing optimism. You know, I've seen from some sharp people in the industry around Stafford, around Cooper Cup in particular. 
And then also when you look, we get to Cam Akers, which we will in a second, like, I mean, there's a huge range of outcomes, it seems like, on Cam Akers. And we've really been just conservative and, and middled it. So just what are your high-level thoughts on the Rams? I think you put that really well. They could self-destruct, and I think that's a pretty big risk. Um, it could also be that, you know, the the way that they self-destruct in 2022 was part of, like, a Super Bowl hangover after a 21-game season and, you know, McVay talking about potentially retiring in that offseason. And maybe they just, you know, realized last year, like, we're going to pack in this year and, and turn it ahead to 2023. But that, you know, expecting that to happen again this year is maybe a little bit um, unfair because, you know, I, I, I do think the 2021 year was a long a long year for these guys. They played a lot of football. Um, and once cup goes down, especially last year, it really changes things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had a tough time, you know, building the roster with everything they did to go in for the super bowl. um, Traded Jalen Ramsey. Yeah. I mean, their defense is falling apart a little bit. I think you're right. I mean, I think there's definitely risk with where they're at. Like keeping this afloat is, has been difficult. They don't have other receiving options. They're not really adding, uh, to the running back room, or I mean, they, they added Zach Evans in, in day three, but they haven't had a lot of picks because of the trades they made to acquire, um, you know, a lot of the the talent that they did to make the Super Bowl run. So they're a tough one for sure. Let's go to Acres wild ride for Cam Acres last year. Kind of why uh, some people don't like the Best Ball Mania tournament structure because he goes from you know one of the worst picks to a guy you kind of needed in the playoffs, which was crazy. And just even from a real life perspective, you know, we thought acres was buried on this team. The team wanted to completely get rid of him, And then he finishes as the workhorse back. They put very little uh, investment into the running back position. This off season can't, can't again, can't really afford to um, where they are. So it sets up for, you know, I've seen some comparisons to him as like this year's Josh Jacobs, you know, a former kind of like early-ish draft pick at the running back position who sets up on this team that's like middle of the pack to get a lot of volume. Um, and I definitely get that comparison. You've got for him for 240 carries. We've only got 187. Uh, just because we're being wimps, we don't really know what to do here. Uh, <laughs> I don't have any conviction on this. Do you have as much conviction as your – Carry I do projection. Yeah, I, Acres is a guy I've been really excited about all offseason, honestly. Um the Achilles injury, we know to be more of like an 18-month injury. He got back after a summer Achilles in what 2021. He got back for the 2021 playoffs in early, you know, January 2022, but it was like a six-month timeline, and he clearly didn't look himself. And I think just because he got back, people expected him to look himself in week one of 2022. Because, hey, now you have a whole offseason. You made it back for the playoffs last year. But he still was only at about 12 months. And we, you know, from what I understand, I'm not I'm not great with the, the medical stuff. But from what I understand, the Achilles is more of an 18-month recovery. And so I was, like, pretty concerned about Akers last year and felt like Mr. Smarty Pants all year. And then what you're talking about late in the year, I mean – when we got closer to that 18-month window, final six games, we see a, a big snap increase to like a more of a workhorse role for him. He averages over 100 total yards. He rushes for 100-plus in each of the final three. Six touchdowns in six games to close the season. Looks like a really good 
version of himself, and we saw him be really good prior to the Achilles. Um, I'm like, okay, we just had too high of expectations on his rehab, but the way he closed the year is pretty optimistic now. You're not completely done with the Achilles. I know it's limited in terms of the, the success stories, but Deontay Foreman's a really good example where it took a couple of years. That guy was a really interesting prospect, tore his Achilles with the Texans, popped back up a couple of years later with the Panthers, now he's with the Bears, but we like this guy. And he, he's a, he's a Achilles uh, bounce back candidate where he showed some rushing efficiency after multiple years of recovery. I, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be crazy to me that Akers comes back around. And then it is a spot to like for a running back. They're thin, like you said. In McVay's tenure, running backs have accounted for a, a really high percentage of their touchdowns. They really mm -hmm. feature the back in close. And then uh, he just likes to also lean on a committee back. Now, the one concern is they haven't really thrown to the running backs much. No more than 76 total running back targets for the last four years amounts to a 12.5% market share maximum over the last four years for the whole position. Um, so that's that's definitely light. Like we were just talking about Christian McCaffrey. We're projecting for him by himself for like 17, 18, maybe even close to 20%. Um, you can go back to early Sean McVay. Todd Gurley had some 80 target seasons, but that number fell to 49 his final season. And with the rise of like Cooper Cup and the way this offense runs now, a lot of short targets to Tyler Higby, they have not thrown to the backs as much. So, I do think there's a little bit of a limit, uh, you know, upside limitation there. And he's obviously a little bit of a risk in terms of whether this whole narrative I'm spinning about how he's now back from his Achilles, if that's actually true or if he's going to struggle. But I liked what we saw in those final six games, and I'm pretty optimistic. Yeah, the runway is definitely there. And you're making me feel better about him. We're certainly going to, you know, slide some more work his way after hearing you Talk about that. Uh, behind him, you've got Zach Evans, rookie, and then you've got Kieran Williams, who you know, we were a little bit hyped on last year, and it just didn't really happen for him. Any of these guys intrigue you as late-round picks? I think the addition of Sony Michelle muddies it up a little. I was pretty interested in Zach Evans, who's a pretty good athlete. Kieran Williams, not a, a great athlete necessarily. Looks like more, to me, looks more like a capped passing down only back, and I just explained some of the concerns about the target rate in this offense. So I haven't really been in on him. I don't really see the upside path for him because I don't think he's a like a high upside runner, like on the rushing side. I think Evans has that type of potential, but kind of feels like Sonny Michelle, they brought him back in, is going to be the main backup, or Evans has now got a, a tougher sled to be the clear handcuff. So at this moment, I'm, I'm kind of laying off a bad offense, ambiguous handcuff situation. Let's go to wide receiver where Cooper Cup is really interesting to talk about at the top of drafts. The bull case for Cup is basically if him and Stafford make it through the season healthy, the team just doesn't self-destruct. There's almost no way he's not a top five fantasy asset with how he's targeted. Um, that simple. Systemically, I do have some worries about the team's you know, self-destructing and Cup starting to get a little bit old. He's not old, but he's starting to get up there a little bit. Stafford's, you know, up there. Um, but yeah, so when you look at it and you try to apply that actually to drafts, I think it's pretty easy at the very top of the draft for me to go like, okay, Jefferson and Chase are clear. I feel pretty good about Tyreek ahead of Cup just because, you know, there's a little bit more risk in terms of, 
if you knew for sure both of them would play the full season healthy, like you'd probably slide that to cup. But, uh, you know, I like the range of outcomes on Tyreek a little bit better in part just because I think the downside is less for Tyreek. And then, you know, CMC's in there, but I don't know. It's just tricky. Um, I know some people have been taking cup as high as like third or fourth overall, you know, for not wanting to take a wide receiver that early and having cup over Tyreek Hill. I've sort of at this point slotted him in fifth. I was lower on him to start the off season, have moved him up a bit, but it's a tough one. Yeah. I feel like I could feel really stupid here, you know, in either direction. Yeah. I think you did a good job of laying out some of the risks. I think the, the ceiling is really interesting as well from the perspective of last year, he was basically, you know, a little bit less efficient, but basically on the same target trajectory as 2021, 2021, he had 191 targets, 11.1 per game. Uh, that 11.1 includes, I think the playoffs, but um, he was like, I think better in the playoffs. I, I know in fantasy scoring, he was better in the playoffs than he was in the season. It was basically the greatest wide receiver season ever. He goes 21 games, scores 22 touchdowns, has just a ridiculous degree of production. Last year, after that 11.1 targets per game in 2021, he was at 10.9 when he went down. Um, it's like kind of hard not to, like you could make a case to project him for close to 200 targets again, because there's not really anyone else in this passing game that threatens that. And what we've seen from him when healthy early last year and the whole year prior into the playoffs, into the Super Bowl, is that teams can't stop him even if he's the only show in town. Like he's just that good or however he fits in their offense or however McVay's scheming it up. This isn't a guy that defenses can take away on a weekly basis. We saw similar with Michael Thomas. I do think defenses are like at times like, okay, fine. We'll give you the, the short passes, you know, like the consistency of targets week in and week out is what I mean with the Michael Thomas comp. We haven't really seen that with the, you know, outside vertical receivers where you can roll a safety over the top and it's easier to kind of try to shut down an elite Justin Jefferson, even though he's incredibly difficult to shut down as well, obviously. But I mean, it is really hard to do this projection. I, you were talking about how there's some some systemic risk. I think there absolutely is. I, the the other side of this coin for Cup and for Stafford is both of these guys, another good year, a couple more good years, their personal legacies could be cemented in like a Hall of Fame type candidacy. Like Cup is probably one or two more good receiver seasons away from being a Hall of Fame wide receiver. He just, like I said, had one of the greatest wide receiver seasons ever. Doesn't take a ton more in your career beyond that. Stafford has a long career lot of counting stats now is a you know a super bowl champion after the last couple of years but probably needs a few more years of good stats i kind of feel like these guys might go out of the the sunset together a little bit mm. just putting up numbers and or trying to and so it's it's tricky you look at cubs per game numbers you're like he could break fantasy football again if he can do that for 17 games yeah and i think you know the dynamic that i had early on was listen all these guys in the first six to seven picks are awesome picks. Like, let me just not take on the systemic risk. What you're pointing to that's a missing element of like oversimplifying that argument is cup ceiling is so good that he could actually like meaningfully outscore these guys, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, makes it harder to just say, Oh, well, I'll just fade them and take the guys that I, you know, I feel more comfortable with. So that's, uh you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's an important part of it. And I still don't really know how I feel about it, but yep. it makes the decision. I don't know how I feel about it either. That's I, I was yeah. like, you made the, the concern case. I'll make the, you know, the bull case, but I don't know how I feel about it either. 
Van Jefferson, one of your uh, <laughs> lifelong favorite players, who we always give Ben crap because uh, he's had this anti-Van Jefferson stance from a fantasy perspective, and then he just turns out to be like a really cool guy, and we're like, Ben, why do, you hate, why do you hate this guy? <laughs> Uh, when he seems like an awesome human being he really does and then uh he's you know pretty fantasy relevant this year because again this team doesn't have a lot of resources which means they're just not adding much and van jefferson seems like the number two early in the offseason i was like drafting a lot of van jefferson to the point where like sometimes i wasn't drafting him when he was highest in our ranks because like i thought we were missing something and I hate when that happens and I like kind of hold back. And then, you know, a month later, now his ADP is at a point where I don't really want to draft him, uh, where I think you know, the market was sort of just missing how thin this wide receiver corpse is. And now they've kind of gone the other way where they're maybe attributing too much volume to him. Uh, we've got him each with 67 targets. Exactly. Uh, thoughts on Van Jefferson and the wide receivers behind him. Like, who are you, like, who are you drafting late here between Tutu Atwell Puka, um, any thoughts there? Yeah, it's um, – and, I mean, there's obvious contingent upside, too, with everything I just said about Cup, even with my really high target projection. If Cup misses time again this year, then, like, somebody has to get the ball thrown to them. Uh, my notes on Jefferson, like, he seems to have a path. I, I'm certainly a little bit more open to him. But, I mean, last year – uh, Cup got shut down. Robinson got shut down a week later. Skoranek had been running a ton of routes and eventually got shut down himself. At the end of the year, it was just Jefferson and Tutu Atwell getting his first routes of his career, basically. And Jefferson posts his lowest target sprout run of his career. He's been pretty efficient in terms of like yards per target, actually. He's had kind of a high ADOT that's helped with that. But, I mean, really poor yards per out run so far through his three-year career. He just looks like a guy that you're betting on routes, right? And and that can get there sometimes, but I want more upside, essentially. And so I, I think Stafford's a really good value in best ball, but I usually don't take him unless I take Cup. And really the only other guy that I like to take with him is Higby, because I think Higby is in the same situation he was in last year. I called Higby's targets per out run last year one of the most like fraudulent ones. Sometimes targets per out run can get you know impacted by various elements and for Higby it was look they were all really low a dot targets they were things that probably the Rams didn't want in their offense at all but they didn't have any other options they didn't have any good guys you know good receivers getting open downfield their quarterbacks hurt and they're dumping off the Higby a ton and he has this like pretty strong targets per run but again way lower a dot than he had prior in his career not great but like he's kind of in the same situation where I mean, I do think his targets are going to come down a little bit, but I still feel pretty comfortable projecting him as the second target earner in this passing game. And then I'm looking at Demarcus Robinson as another guy comes over as a veteran coming off his best season, really, especially in terms of, you know, earning targets. He had a 20.2% targets per out run in a small sample with the Ravens last year, a veteran they brought over. Maybe they'll run him out there a little bit. I am projecting Van Jefferson for the second most targets at receiver to be clear, but I have Robinson mixing in. I have Skoranek mixing in, and then I have Tutu Atwell mixing in, but I see him as more of a rotational guy because they kind of really only took deep shots to him. He had a really high A dot, uh, and he's still like, you know, only 150 pounds or whatever. He's not really an NFL size player, but he, I think he'll rotate in. But I kind of think if Robinson gets into the mix, you're probably, and then Nakua, as you mentioned as well, but I, I think he's actually kind of boxed out. Like there are 
I think Skoranek's the one maybe that people forget about, but he ran a lot of routes last year. They like him. I think they're going to keep playing him a decent amount. I think all these guys are going to mix in to some degree. It will make it sort of tough if Cup is 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 dominating targets like I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah, the only guy I've really taken late is I've taken 2-2 round 18 just on some correlated teams where I needed a wide receiver, but that's about it. Uh, you've got 100 targets for Higby. We've got 89. He followed a similar path to Jefferson in terms of the ADP movement where it seemed like the market was like, we're done with Tyler Higby and like not realizing that he has to catch a lot of passes here. And now his ADP's come up, but it hasn't come up. I, you know, I'm still kind of in on Higby. It was glad to hear you give some optimism for him because yes, like, as you said, the targets per out run come down, but the efficiency hopefully comes up a little bit too, as that. It sucks that his ADP is like right with Stafford because I, even when I take cup, if I want to go Stafford, I, I often find myself in a spot where I'm like, I have to pick either Higby or Stafford and I'm not right. going to be able to get the other one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That can be, can be difficult. Um, I don't think there's too much to add to that though. Basically like Higby seems like he's fine where he is. I think some people have had a bad DFS experience with Higby and that, you know, affects how they feel about him in season long. So let's go to Arizona final team for us on the projections podcast special and the worst another difficult one <laughs> another difficult one because the kyler injury the coaching change a lot of uncertainty we're leaning into vegas a bit here where they're expecting arizona to be quite bad as a result we only have them for 60.5 plays run overall which is really quite low and drastically different from what they've been in the past where they've been up tempo with with cliff kingsbury you've also brought them down a ton not as much as us where we you know we we went pretty hard on it you've got them down to 62.3 we do each have them around a 61 and a half percent to 62 percent called pass rate um you've got a few more attempts in terms of pass attempts and rush attempts just from the higher plays per game number yeah but i mean it's I'm laughing because we're, we're actually pretty similar. Like this is a pretty huge diversion from their past trends, like you said. And then you're also layering in, okay, well, they probably have two different quarterbacks when Kyler's healthy. Do they keep letting him play up tempo shotgun? Or is it a whole different offense with a new coach and everything? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, and then also, can they really be as bad as the market thinks? Cause we, we've referenced the implied seasonal totals uh, that Jack Miller has pulled together. And I mean, they're, 24 points below the Bucks, which is the next lowest team. I mean, we're finishing on the the last team of, of all the projected point scoring this year. But, like, are they really that bad? I guess I, like, I've had a hard time understanding why they're projected to be so horrible. Yeah. Um, it is surprising to see them projected so poorly. And I think part of it, I, I wonder what element there is to this is a team that is in some ways tanking, right? Like they could have the top two picks in the draft next year, including their own pick. And Kyler, like, are they just going to really take their time allowing Kyler to come back from injury? How much do they play him when he does come back from injury? Like, is he their QB? I personally think, and you know, talking with Levitan on this, the way most of these teams operate is like when the guys are healthy, they kind of play. You know, whether they should or not, you know, most of these NFL teams aren't thinking quite at that level. So I don't think that's like a huge risk, but I have seen that floated that people are worried that they're 
really going to take their time with Kyler and it could just not materialize in any sort of productive way uh, if this season starts off bad and they kind of just want those. That's where, that's where I feel like it's the only explanation for what the market is listing, but I'm with you guys where, I mean, I think Kyler also was under fire a lot last year is probably itching to get back, you know, was seen yelling at Cliff Kingsbury caught on, on, on tape kind of chewing out Kingsbury. There were some issues there. I think he's probably excited to get back and like, prove something. There's a lot of people sort of doubting him this year. And, and there's been a lot since he signed the contract last summer and all the video game stuff. And I mean, I just, it doesn't seem like the, from a, from an individual standpoint, he seemed to take some of that stuff personally last year in some of the, in some of the um, press conferences. I, it would surprise me if he was like cool with just not playing football all year this year. Yeah. And Kyler's someone who, when drafts first started, I took a decent bit of, and then we kind of got scared on his timeline that maybe we were being too optimistic. And then he's been kind of buried in our ranks, but I sort of treated him as like just a really, you know, team construction specific bet where, you know, if I've missed out on my stacks, my correlation, it's going to be three quarterback team where I need upside. You know, I don't mind taking Kyler somewhere near ADP. I also have a lot of Rondell Moore, despite all the negative stuff I have on the Arizona <laughs> passing game. And that makes it kind of like, a backdoor stack. You can also take one of the tight ends, including Trey McBride, super late. Um, so I've, I've liked him as an out where, especially, you know, where I've just missed out on other guys. I was like, I have no upside at quarterback, like give me Kyler. And then like two guys who can just get me through the first half of the season. So uh, I did that a ton early. Me. And then I wondered if, I wondered if it was sort of a fool's gold, like, it might be. I don't Because he's coming back from an ACL. Does he run less too? And then does he even have a real ceiling with this like really poor market perception of this team? Does he come back and just not actually have that ceiling at, from you know from quarterback scoring? And then he also has obviously significant games played risk. So I stopped taking him based on that. But I mean, I it's certainly possible if the, if he comes back earlier in the year than people are expecting. And I think some people have hinted that like it wouldn't it hasn't like been ruled out that he could come back in the first month even, you know, and if he did, I mean, yeah. I don't think they're going to do that, but they got a new coach. Like maybe they just are crazy and they're like, Hey, we want to actually try to win this year. Yeah. And for me, it's like an option C type thing, right? Like I don't want him. That's why he's kind of buried in our ranks, but there comes a point in a draft where I throw in the ranks out the window and I'm like, okay, I can tell myself a story to make this work <laughs> with Tyler Kind of because I, you know, I'm, I'm grasping at straws um, and, and he's one of the last outs you have to maybe some sort of upside and correlation there late. But let's go to James Conner at running back who, you know, if there's a poster child each year for the projectable fragile volume, you know, it might be James Conner this year where he steps into a team that's really bad. He's had his durability issues, um, talent question marks at this point in his career but there's just not much at running back. They've got Keontae Ingram, Corey Clement behind him. And, you know, one of these guys, and this is just a good note for myself. Um, I think these guys who are kind of gross, but have a lot of projectable volume seem to be underdrafted when these best ball drafts first release. And then it, it corrects kind of quickly. So I wish I grabbed more of him early when he was like, you know, a 10th, 11th round pick. And it was just worth the risk. Now he's come up to 
86 overall, which is what, like the eighth round. Um, so it, it's a different argument to be had for Connor. How do you feel about him and his ability to kind of hold on to this volume over the course of the season? I think you put it really well. I mean, he's in line for a lot of work. I think his efficiency, the TD rates are all big questions. He's had strong TD rates in the past, but, um, you know, I've talked on some of the other shows about um, using those market projected implied points to, to come up with an expected TD number. When I did the initial projection for these guys, my uh, TD number was quite a bit higher than their league low expected TD number. And I had to come back and Connor was one of the big ones I had to really move down where I still had him having you know pretty strong TD rates, which he's done in the past. But the way that the market is projecting this offense, I mean, you have to have him as like a below average TD rate. I wind up with a 200 carry season where I only have him for 5.2 rush TDs and then 1.5 receiving, you know, 6.7 TD season. Maybe he gets to seven, maybe he gets to eight. But, you know, in the past, he's had the ability to get to 12 touchdowns or something like that. Um, probably not going to get there unless they really overperform the market, which is where, I mean, if you're going to make a pretty big bet on the Cardinals, I think it makes some sense. But otherwise, I think there's some real ceiling concerns with him and your, you know, even some concerns of them being so out of it that they sort of sit him down with a small nick, which, you know, teams do when they say, hey, we want to see what we have in Keontae Ingram or some of these other young guys. Um, I think you're taking on a lot of risk with the workload for not really a lot of upside. Mm -hmm. However, I mean, this is vaguely the profile of like Josh Jacobs last year. I'm, I'm vaguely open to, you know, considering it, but it's tricky. It's 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 not one that I want to a bet that I want to make a lot of. Yeah, I think this small difference for me between him and Jacobs last year though is is like sort of the team expectation in general. Like the Raiders had kind of like set up as a decent scoring expected offense last year, whereas we've hit on at least from a Vegas perspective, like there those expectations do not exist for Arizona. As far as Keontae Ingram. Do you think he's the clear number two here? Like I can see an argument for him being like a late round guy to pick, but I'd, I'd want to be pretty sure he's the RB two. And I haven't had that level of confidence yet to draft him. I think you put that well too. I mean, again, team expectation low and I don't, I haven't had enough confidence that he's the handcuff when I also think there's a limit to how great he can be. Now I, you know, it's a subtle difference, but I do think as far as handcuffs go, he has probably a little bit more potential to get into the lead role just through like Connor sort of being shuffled out or being too old or not being the right fit for a team that's in transition or whatever. And so Ingram winds up getting just more work like immediately. And so, yeah, maybe there's not as much ceiling, but there's a little bit more of a potential for him to hit that ceiling, whatever his ceiling is. He's been interesting to me. I've certainly given him consideration late, but the way you put it is, is right for me is that I haven't had enough confidence yet that he's a clear number two. But if we get more clarity on that, I think he's a guy I'll mix in, uh, you know, last round flyer. Okay. Let's go to wide receiver here. Marquise Brown. Uh, he's a good example of real early in the off season. You know, people are afraid of the news uncertainty. You know, it seemed pretty clear. Deandre Hopkins was like very likely to be gone and it wasn't priced in enough to Marquise Brown's rank. Now it's priced in fully difficult to know what to do with marquise brown um i am in general in on these arizona receivers because our inputs are so conservative on the arizona offense in general a lot of stuff ben's talking about in terms of vegas that like 
if they're still popping for me after that, like may, maybe it's it's an okay bet. And then if they beat their Vegas expectation, it looks good. But we do also know a lot of these breakout players who really beat their ADP by a lot are generally on good offenses. And like the chance of this being a good offense doesn't seem high. So it's tough. You've got 133 targets for Marquise Brown. I've got 124. For me, that sort of just kind of plays at the 5-6 turn, um, even in, yep. in a bad offense. Yeah, I mean, he's always had a pretty intriguing, like, per-route run profile, the peripherals, targets per-route run. Not amazing, but he's been on lower-volume offense in Baltimore. I was intrigued last year, and then he has kind of an injury-plague season, but still earns volume pretty well, just wasn't real efficient. And we wouldn't expect big efficiency this year because he's either playing with, you know, potentially not 100% Kyler or a worse quarterback. But I do think that he can, in this passing game with DeAndre Hopkins not in the mix now, earn a, a good chunk of the of the targets. I have him at 23% target share. I think he can be the number one in this offense. It's not super exciting, but he's also, you know, I think a player that can add some of his own efficiency some you know uses speed to get some some big plays downfield or some after the catch stuff. Um, he, I'm at least intrigued from a volume perspective. I have uh, a lot of Rondell Moore too, and I, I like the profile a lot. But he's the only other guy that I can really comfortably project for a lot of volume in this passing game, and I think there's reason to have concern about whether he can do that. And if he can't, I mean Brown isn't gonna. I mean, who's he competing with? Greg Dortch and Zach Ertz at that point. Like it's not, you know, I, he could be the only show in town like Brandon Cooks was for a couple of years with the, the Texans over the last few years. Yeah. And I'm looking up my Rondell Moore exposure as you speak, because uh, I have 25% Rondell Moore thus far. I got a lot of Rondell Moore. So uh, part of that's projectable volume, but, you know, I still think there's like an itch of upside to him, not a ton of competition. And I need you, I need you to make me feel good about my Rondell Moore exposure. I mean, I think it's a bet I still want to make, honestly. Um, he was really productive, really young in college. I understand there's concerns about his size. I'm a lot more comfortable playing into a short receiver when he can squat like 600 pounds or whatever he was doing at Purdue. He's an, an, like a really uh, built athlete, 4'3 speed. Uh, again, yeah, very short, 5'7 or whatever. Huge vert. He, I mean, he has other athleticism. The comps to guys like Steve Smith, I, like, I know that there's not a lot of guys like Steve Smith that have done it, but if you're going to be the next Steve Smith, you have to be not just 5'7", you got to be 5'7", and Rondell Moore athleticism is sort of the idea that I'm trying to make there. But, um, yeah, hasn't done a ton yet. Hasn't done a lot uh, in terms of, you know, his ADOT was still very low last year. And I think you – it moved up from his, his rookie year was basically, I think, 1.2 was his ADOT. It was basically all just around the line of scrimmage. He got a few more downfield looks last year. It wasn't, you know, a smashing success or anything in year two, but um, still a, like a strong rate of volume per route. And some of that is that they are kind of designing stuff for him. But again, in this offense, there's not a lot else there. I think they will continue. I mean, it's, it's a different offense. It's a different coach. Maybe they won't see it the same way. But given his skill set, I think they'll probably still be like, okay, we want to get some design touches into Rondell Moore's hand around the, around the line of scrimmage. The upside is sort of a Debo Samuel light profile where he gets a lot of work. He's able to add explosive yak potential on top of it. There's no reason to believe he's as good as Debo at yak, but he could be good. He has athleticism. There's a reason to believe that he could be all right. 
and then add some downfield stuff to it. Although obviously his height might be a limitation to being a, a you know a heavy downfield receiver. But overall, I think if he's getting a lot of the short area stuff, he can get to 100 targets and he can have a high catch rate and he can have you know a solid PPR uh, line or you know even half PPR. Those catches still add up. And then hopefully he's explosive enough to add some yard yardage efficiency on that as well. But I'm not, I mean, it's a bet I'm willing to make again this year. I'm not out on him. Any interest in Dorch or Michael Wilson is around 18 wide receiver. I've been a little bit more interested in Dorch again, because if more isn't it last year when more was banged up, like Dorch was doing pretty well. And I think Dorch had a, a pretty interesting prospect profile when you go way back, but what he did last year is what I'm more concerned with, which seem to show still an ability to earn volume, at least on a weekly level, um, is probably a pretty good wide receiver as far as you know depth receivers go in the NFL. Um, so he's one that if things break a certain way, if the you know the tight ends aren't doing much, if Rondell Moore is not doing much, like there's paths in this season to Greg Dorch being sort of the second weapon behind Marquise Brown, I think. Tight end, we've got Zach Ertz versus Trey McBride. And Ertz is coming off ACL, MCL surgery. I think he suffered his injury after week 10 or right around week 10 last season. So uncertain exactly on the timeline here. As uh, people who had Trey McBride in in our high stakes season long contest, Gretch, I know we were like crazy excited to have him for the, you know, the last third of the season where, you know, Ertz is was getting the volume and doing absolutely nothing with it. And we're like, oh, man, now we get that volume to Trey McBride. We'll get a little bit of efficiency. And then he he kind of just put up Zach Ertzian lines on less targets. Uh, so it was a little bit frustrating. How do you feel about these two this season? Yeah, I mean, I, you said that well. I mean, I, I'm kind of playing my projection that has like Ertz sort of fading and McBride moving ahead, but there's no way around McBride being a bit disappointing from like a Tucker outrun perspective last year, especially because Ertz was getting volume. I remember like I was so annoyed during the regular season where I was like, he's not doing anything but running five yards and turning around. He's like not capable of running another route besides like a five yard stop. And they're throwing to him every play. His like Ertz was getting a lot of targets targets too. Yeah. He was like a valuable in my like expected fantasy points, which isn't perfect, but he was like high up there. Which is why we were so excited about McBride taking over. And then McBride, who's supposed to be able to get those targets and then add to this with some athleticism, can't even get those targets. I mean, obviously they're not the exact same player and there's veteran savvy, find the hole in the zone stuff that Ertz was probably doing. But like McBride, good enough profile that we expected him to come in and get some of that. And he got basically none of it. His targets per out run, were incredibly low. I think it was like close to 10%. Um, yeah, 12.3%. Yards per out run, 0. 0.84, 0. 0.84. I mean, that's just not good. I'm still interested in him from a longer view perspective. You know, we don't necessarily want to write off tight ends just because they have a tough rookie season. But for me, it's always, you know, context dependent. When a player has an opportunity and the things align for him and the role was working for the tight end before him, and he's not able to take advantage, I take that as a kind of a negative hit, even though I like the player. I have taken some McBride late. He's the one that um, I'm willing to mix in a little bit uh, of these two tight ends. But we've also talked on the other shows that there's a lot of interesting late-round tight ends, and I'm, I'm, I think I've only taken him like twice. I'm not taking a lot of him. Yeah, it's... He is one of the, you know, the backdoor stack candidates if you do build a Kyler team, or if you just, like, want somebody coming back on a Philly team. The 
I am just drafting a lot of three tight end teams in general um, because of there's there are a lot of options around it. Like if you get sniped on someone like, oh, Trey McBride's there, like it's not the worst thing in the world, even if he's not option A there. So building a lot of three tight end teams. Um, but yeah, that's going to do it for us on this year's version of the Establish the Edge offseason's projection special. Again, thanks to Ben for doing this with me. Thanks to Jack and Mark for all the help on the Establish the Run projections. Pumped that we got this out there early this year. I was saying to Ben before the show, I think we're wrapping up a couple days prior to when we actually started last year. So hopefully everyone can kind of use these and reference these throughout the off season. And Ben, tell the people where they can find you for the rest of the off season and in the actual season. Yeah. Uh, the newsletter is bengretsch.substack.com. That's where I write the stealing signals newsletter in season. That's my main spot. Um, have some uh, sports betting thing at Stealing Lines. It's called uh, another Substack, and then some podcasts uh, with Sean Siegel over on Road of His Radio, Stealing Bananas, and and the Ship Chasing Show with uh, Pete Overzet and Pat Crane, which is always a blast. So those are the spots to to find me. And I just want to say again, thanks to everyone who who tuned in for this whole thing. It's been a blast doing it with you. Thanks for having me, Mike. I, I again, I, I think you're the best in the business of this stuff, and I have such a uh, fun time getting to talk through all of this with you and get your thoughts on it as well. Really helps me cement my thoughts. And, and then the listeners that, that seem to really enjoy it. I mean, it's cool. It's cool what this has become the last three years and we've had a blast doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I know it makes our rankings, our projections better over at Establish the run, being able to get your thoughts on some of these situations. A lot of times I'm like tweaking little things as we're, as we're talking like directly into our projections. So really appreciate it. Look forward to it every year. And again, thanks everybody for tuning in. You can find my stuff over at Establish the Run. If you want to watch these visually, you can check out the Establish the Run YouTube channel. Good luck this season, everybody.